There's no doubt that small businesses are the foundation of our communities. That's why MasterCard has invested in tools to support small business owners as they grow their business. With MasterCard tools and resources, you can increase sales by shortening checkout time, broadening your customer base, and tapping into new opportunities to increase customer loyalty. So get started. Discover all the ways MasterCard can help guide, grow, and protect your business at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. February is Black History Month, and we believe it's important to honor, celebrate, and pass the mic to black entrepreneurs and the support organizations that help empower them. Join us as we share the contributions and accomplishments of black entrepreneurs and learn about their lived experience as founders across Canada. Stay tuned all month and look for a recap of these stories and a complete list of resources at the end of February on the Startup Canada blog. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Toronto-based social entrepreneur, Victor Beausoleil. Victor Beausoleil is the CEO of Intuit Consulting and the co-founder and executive director of SETSI, the Social Economy Through Social Inclusion Coalition. At the age of 24, Victor co-founded Redemption Reintegration Services, one of Canada's largest youth-led youth justice agencies. In 2013, Victor received his first public service appointment as a member of the Premier's Council on Youth Opportunities from Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne. Today, Victor sits on the board of the Toronto Community Benefits Network, and he's president of the board of directors at the Canadian Community Economic Development Network. He's also on the loan review committee for the Fair Finance Fund and a board member at the Regional Ethno Advisory Council for Correctional Service Canada. And if you don't think that's enough, then previously he's also been a board member of the Atkinson Charitable Foundation, the Harriet Tubman Community Organization, and the Toronto Community Housing Social Investment Fund. Okay, I can't wait to get into this. So welcome to the show, Victor. Thank you so much for having me. Can you sum up your career for me? Normally we talk about entrepreneurs and the subject is business, but you are a creative, driving, active force in so many areas. Tell me how that got started. Um, it got started very young. I had my paper route to the Scarborough Mirror when I was 12. And myself and my friends covered a lot of grounds on East Toronto, trying to generate revenue for ourselves. And over the years, um, I could blame a lot of things. I could blame poor municipal um, urban design. I could blame private equity, hedge funds, venture capital, and developers revitalizing or gentrifying communities. But over 34 of my friends passed away due to gun violence um, between the ages of 13 to I'd say about 21, 22. And that brought me to a space where I felt um, compelled to develop models and frameworks to mitigate um, some of the violence in my community, but as well find ways and means to reintegrate folks um, that's where my peers into communities. Um, so I found the Redemption Reintegration Services. And that work um, over a course of time with some remarkable colleagues, um, I recognized rather quickly that most of the social ills that manifested in vulnerable, distinct some communities or underserved and marginalized communities, um, whether it be poverty, um, housing, um, substance abuse, criminalization, whatever the issue was, there was a social economic lens to it. And that led me to where I am today as the 
current um, steward and executive director of SETSI, which stands for Social Economy Through Social Inclusion. And that also guides uh, my values and principles as a husband and father of four, as well as to where I volunteer my time on various boards, directors um, throughout Canada and in the city of Toronto. That's got to be the best, most coherent and fastest and complete introduction I've ever heard. So thank you so much for that. I feel I know you already. Um, you also have to do some business consulting. So just tell me a little bit about that as well. Does that pay the bills? Um, so definitely um, consulting um, has supported um, my ability to understand and how to navigate um, systems and definitely finding ways and means to provide um, supports and services um, to businesses within my community and so definitely that has paid some bills in the past um and obviously, obviously i'm also a writer i've written quite a few books and i do a lot of speaking engagements so there there are um definitely um models that drive revenue for myself as an individual um but my passion has always been community economic development and community organizing and that's um that that's been the driving force i'm uh, not i'm not really that's old school model of capitalistic um, revenue generation, more mission-driven business oriented in terms of my consulting work. Right. So we are both book writers. I've written one and you've written what, 14? Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've actually written 15, published 14. I'm working on a book um, right now called Susu and Economic Sovereignty because my mother, um, she immigrated from St. Lucia and she worked for the Ontario Insurance Commission, which became um, the Financial Service Commission of Ontario for quite some time. But I watched her as a young man um, when I was a young man, um, facilitates as a Susu banker in our community in Toronto. And some women in her community bought their first cars, had the down payment for their first homes through this Susu. And it kind of gave me um, a, 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 a very different perspective on what cooperative economics and community economic development could look like. And then as I grew older and I studied the works of Adam Smith and Mansa Munsa and Dr. Carolyn Chinez Hussein and Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nemhard and all these authors that really gave me different perspectives on how we can use capital as a catalytic force to drive change, um, definitely inspired a lot of the work that I've been doing um, over the past, I'd say, decade now, or actually two decades. And just help me understand about Susu lending, is that sort of the same as community micro-lending? Yeah, it's very similar. So in indigenous communities and African communities, we have um, Kigali's, Hagbaz, we have Susus, we have partners, we have hands. These are different terminologies or jargon um, or vernacular that, that articulates um, the movements of resources or fiat currency um, between families or individuals for a goal. Um, and there's a bookkeeping associated with this, but part of it is it, it's so informal, and which is also troublesome because when you look at the Community Investment Act in 1977 in the United States, that developed the first CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions. And when you look in Canada at some of the the major examples of what community economic development looks like, you have to look at three communities primarily. You have to look at the Francophone community and the work done by Nancy Niumtin, Beatrice Allen, Philip Garand, um, the folks at Cap Finance, at Risk, at Chantier. They turned a $20 million investment from Paul Martin into about $600 million in economic activity. That's one group, the Francophone community that recognized themselves as powerful economic actors and drove change. Then when you look at the indigenous community and indigenomics and the remarkable work being done, there's over, I think, 57 and AFIs, Aboriginal financial institutions. That's another model that needs to be um, looked at by many um, um, 
many groups that are racialized. And last but not least, if you look at rural communities and the over 260 community futures associations across the country, that's another framework or model um, where once again, rural folks recognize they need access to capital for loans and the demand side. They were able to dictate and almost determine the terms of how lending happened. And this happens a lot of times informally in various communities, but validating the informal, as some of my elders say, is so important. But like I said before, I grew up as a young man watching these dynamics play out. And I definitely um, have grown to, to recognize there's various lenses and various barriers, um, but obviously opportunities to scale community economic developments and community finance in our communities. The, 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 the book you're working on now on SUSU lending is the idea to uh, sort of explore it in a way to promote its use in, in, in other types of communities? Um, more to validate um, African principles. So uh, my family and I, we travel throughout the Caribbean and we travel to about eight African countries. Um, and we've I've, I've been able to do key informant interviews and really look at the different ways that peoples of African descent internationally have organized their economic relationships to benefit their communities and, and, and to achieve goals, collect, uh, collective goals. So the book, um, Susu and Economic Sovereignty, um, is a text that definitely, I believe, can inform and support other communities. But it's, it's, it's really to ensure that our story is told, because whenever anyone thinks of economics, they don't, they don't think of Black um, economists. They think of Maynard Keynes, or they think of um, um, Hank Bernanke or, or Hank Polson, or, or they think of Adam Smith, who wrote um, The Wealth of Nations in 1776. No one would think about Mansa Munsa or African leaders um, from time immemorial that we're able to not just um, amass resources, but find ways to deploy capital to create equity, inclusion, diversity, access, and, and did it well. So it's really to find ways and means to share new narratives that are actually old narratives. Right, because I mean, the, the narrative that I understand is that some white person created community micro lending in, I don't know, 1980 or something. <laughs> and you're telling me it's been going on a lot longer than that. We just weren't smart enough to see it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's almost like saying that some white guy developed supply chains in Canada. Like if it wasn't for indigenous people, the Hudson Bay Company wouldn't have been able to get food. So like a lot of these terms that we use, like social finance, social economy, um, diverse supply chains, community finance, community economic development, these terms are new terms that are great. Um, and, and, and from an academic perspective, um, usually the, the, the definers kind of frame out the, the not just the, the definition, but who actually understands the terminology. But these frameworks and models have existed for a very long time. Um, let's start at the beginning, Victor. At the age of 24, you co-founded Redemption Reintegration Services, which has since involved into a leading player for, for youth justice. Tell me about why you created this service. How did it tie into the story you told us early of, earlier of 34 friends passing away due to, due to, due to firearms? Yeah, my, um, uh, recently, actually, the, the 34th was a young man named Samuel Abwache. He's one of my brothers that I mentored, supported, a social purpose organizer from the Jaden Finch community that was murdered um, visiting his mom in Jaden Finch in um, September of 2021. Um, but at a very young age, um, there were a lot of systemic um, barriers and challenges that young people face in urban centers um, and in the city of Toronto, Scarborough, 
priority neighborhoods identified. And these neighborhoods um, had a lot of um, structural um, challenges. And these challenges weren't addressed um, by various um, stakeholders. And what ended up happening was um, high levels of youth violence um, in, in various areas. And those high levels of youth violence disproportionately impacted Black and Indigenous youth, Sri Lankan youth, um, um, multiple dem demographics of racialized young people, but some more disproportionately than others. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that um, stopping violence is very challenging, um, and, and the work that my elder Louis March um, is still doing to this very day, uh, the zero gun violence movement speaks to that. Um, this is work that's happened long before I was even born, Dudley Laws, Charles Roach, I'm the Black Action Defense Committee. So this is work that's been going on in Canada for decades. But I, I believed um, at that age that I could support my friends who were already supporting informally um, once released, sometimes from minor charges. And I've had relationships with multiple chiefs of police in Toronto. Um, and I, I remember um, being in Bill Blair's office talking about some of these issues and Julian Vantino's uh, and Mark Saunders, funny enough. Um, and we were trying to address what reintegration looks like and addressing it from the perspective of a wraparound service delivery model. So sorry, to be clear, sorry, Victor. So reintegration means people coming out of a, a, a spell in a correctional facility and, yeah, and exactly. getting back into the community. Exactly. So coming from a correctional facility and rejoining um, or entering community, and we identified various things. One, we identified that there was a catch-22 when it came to educational attainment. Um, sometimes you'd have a young man that would try and get into school, but because his disclosure was too large, disclosure meaning his court documents, um, the principal wouldn't allow him in the school. Um, so, which makes sense because if the young man has charges that are serious, you don't want him in your school because there's a public safety issue. But in the same spirit as a minor, he has a right to education under the charter. Um, so we were trying to solve these pervasive problems around education, housing, mental illness, substance abuse, poverty, um, and, and, and all these issues, but we realized the only way we could do it is through having a wraparound service delivery model. So we had housing workers, employment counselors, court workers. We had a registered nurse practitioner. Um, we, we did work for two and a half years with um, the healthcare utilization team at McMaster University on a research study that tracked our recidivism rate versus other um, organizations in the city of Toronto. And recidivism is a word that just means um, going back or being reoffending, basically. And our recidivism rate that was tracked and, and published in the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail, and I believe that the National Post spoke to a 3.5% recidivism rate versus other um, usual um, stakeholders that were doing this work. And I believe it was primarily because um, it was culturally specific and it was um, youth-led, meaning that um, everyone within the organization at the time was under the age of 30. Um, as well, um, it was Black, it was African-Canadian youth engaging other African Canadian youth to solve their challenges. So called cultural um, considerations of care was a primary attribute or feature to the model. And, and it worked for almost for seven, almost a decade. So that worked for 10 years. And, uh, and were you running it that whole time? No, I, I, I left the organization, I think five years in, maybe six years in. Um, and my work, um, iterated and changed drastically um well one due to just life I'm, I'm, I'm a husband father of four and then there's a lot there was a lot going on in my life in my in my 20s and i 
subsequently um, founded SETSI, Social Economy Through Social Inclusion, because I recognized that a lot of the challenges that those young people faced and a lot of the challenges that brothers and sisters in my community have faced and even myself have faced has a social, social economic lens to it. And until we find ways and means to create a countervailing force to the, the current iteration of capitalism that kind of governs everything um, in our communities, um, we're in trouble. Um, so uh, enter sexy and the work that I'm currently I've been facilitating for um, I'd say a little over three years now. And so, 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 you know, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't get it that uh, our our system doesn't work for everybody, and that, and it makes it hard for some. How how does Setsi try and get at these very the very underpinnings of our economy, and and how to make them more inclusive? Yeah, so we use a few tools, um, and we believe that they're all tools under social innovation. So social finance, social procurement, social acquisitions, um, the co-op movement in Canada, community economic development, and impact investing. We use these as tools to try and drive change in terms of inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. So for instance, in terms of social procurement, the municipal government, provincial government, and federal government procure services probably more than anyone within our, our nation. Finding ways and means to ensure that businesses um, from vulnerable distinct groups or, or businesses on the margins or the periphery of the economy have access to the RFPs and the bidding process or even understand the word social procurement and being able to access those resources um, is a win for SETSI. But once again, that requires capacity building. So a lot of our work is through our incubator for social purpose organizations and social enterprise leaders, our accelerator program, which is six months, our partnerships with the federal government, our partnerships with the city of Toronto, our partnerships with multiple players in the social finance, social economy ecosystem. We do monthly, sometimes bi-monthly webinars and capacity building sessions. We facilitate panels and we do one-on-one coaching with business leaders and, and business owners and social purpose organizations as it relates to technical assistance. So governance, human resources, bookkeeping, the relationship with the Canadian Revenue Agency, CRA, et cetera. So through all those um, attributes and service offerings, um, we've been able to make impact. And, and, and I believe that we've been able to um, shine a light on some of the challenges and systemic barriers that are just obvious and find ways and means to amplify work being done within very specific communities that a lot of times folks aren't aware of. Right. This is such important work, and I'm so grateful to you for dedicating so much of your energy to it. Can you share um, any examples of, of wins or breakthroughs or changes of attitudes? at the very least, that you've been able to affect through Setsi? Um, definitely. I think um, a win has been the remarkable work that's been happening federally through the Social Finance Fund. Um, the Social Finance Fund was announced in the Fall Economic Statement of 2018. This was an $805 million pot to deploy catalytic capital um, to a wholesaler, intermediaries, and social purpose organizations. Setsi was one of the, uh, is the only Black-led organization that was funded through the Investment Readiness Partnership or program. And we literally saw the life-changing impacts that can be facilitated um, and supported once social purpose organizational leaders have access to coaches, mentors, an ecosystem, um, and, and not just an ecosystem, but ecosystem mobilization.
and activities that build their capacity to then in turn do work better and impact their communities and their constituents. So I believe that um, the investment readiness program and the social finance fund that's currently still being de deployed, but the advocacy work um, and the, 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 the pressing the importance of inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, and the importance that whenever, um, whether it be the private sector, um, the public sector, um, facilitates any type of work, there needs to be a social, racial, and gender equity um, lens on the work. And I believe that a lot of times work is being done and these lenses aren't being taken into account. So that's definitely a win, the work that we've been doing um, in terms of really pressing um, our governments to to, to find ways and means to support folks on the margins, the periphery of the economy, especially racialized and vulnerable distinct groups. Right. Um, any, is there any progress in the, the social procurement area that we talked about? I mean, is, is it Absolutely. possible to say, hey, before we had X percent, <clears throat> now we have 2X? Yeah, so on a federal level, um, PSPC is doing some remarkable work right now and SETSI's excited to, to, to see how that work plays out, but they've really invested their time, energy, and resources in finding ways to make access, um, um, well, just to the system more accessible. On a municipal front, SETSI's been working with the City of Toronto, by Social Canada, and Anchor TO, um, specifically on a project to engage Black-led and diverse businesses to really find, um, one, some of the barriers, which are simple. Sometimes businesses on the margins can't access tier one contracts. Um, a lot of um, diverse suppliers aren't aware of the pipelines, but right now, for instance, our remarkable colleagues of the Black Business Professional Association, the BUPA run by Nadine Spencer and Ross Kadastra, they've built a database of Black businesses. And if you look at the work of Christelle Francois, uh, formerly at um, the Canadian Black Chamber of Commerce, um, and Michael Forrester and, and Doug Minter and their team, they partner with Uber to also build a database of Black businesses. So right now, finding ways and means to consolidate these pipelines and really raise the threshold of opportunities, identify ways where Black businesses can get push communications to them around some of the bids, and then finding ways to, to mitigate issues like the 10% bonds um, um, some, um, issue um, or um, warm introductions um, to tier one contractors, because a lot of times these large contractors, they outsource 90% of the deals, but their Rolodex is limited. They're not aware um, and don't have access to diverse supply chains, as well looking at some of the challenges faced in terms of accreditation bodies. Um, Cassandra London at CAMC is doing remarkable work around accrediting and validating and certifying businesses um, in Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities. Same thing for Buy Social Canada, but their work needs to be amplified. So Definitely, there's lots of wins. It would be hard to articulate them all um, within this session because the social procurement file is a very large one. And I'm hoping to actually see some wins provincially. Um, well, a lot of my, um, a, lot, a lot of work, I believe, needs to be done between now and June 2nd in Ontario, primarily, around social procurement. Because if you look at the work being done in, in, in British Columbia and other jurisdictions, it's obvious that social procurement is a win for communities because it's not new money. These are dollars that are already being deployed. It's finding ways to deploy this capital in a more innovative, creative, and equitable fashion. Absolutely. Now, SETSI is based in Toronto, but does it, is it work going to affect communities across Canada? Yes. Yeah, so um, SETSI has um, always worked nationally. Um, 
primarily a lot of our work is in Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia in terms of, at least that's like our members that tune in and engage. But we've done work in Vancouver with Vancouver. We're a national organization, but based in Toronto, founded in Toronto. Um, our scope was Ontario-based initially, but the Black community is, um, well, one, not a monolith, um, and two, racialized communities um, have been traditionally um, and historically excluded from some of the aforementioned ecosystems like social finance, social economy, community economic development, the list goes on. We, um, it was really important for us to find ways and means to engage nationally. So I sit at the tip table, the table of impact investment practitioners, which is a national table. I sit at the people Center economy table, which is a national table and, and a few others. Yeah, I love the, the, the mission uh, of SETSI. The SETSI model aims to tell a story, change minds, shift perspectives, and grow communities. I mean, it makes it all sound simple, but in a way, you know, that's, that's exactly the challenge, isn't it? To make sure that everyone on, 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 at every level understands who's out there and what their capabilities are and is open to new ideas, new, new sources of, of, of procurement, uh, new opportunities, and comes all together, and, and that everyone gets all together in a network of trust. Absolutely. I agree completely. And that's why I really actually believe in the vision of, of not just Kayla, but your entire team at Startup Canada, because remember, as a nation, we need to move from a place of striving and advocating for inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, to actually actualizing belonging because belonging is the actual goal. Sometimes you're invited places, but you're not welcomed. And there's a difference, there's a nuance um, to that. And we wanna create ecosystems and sectors and spaces and regions and communities that are vibrant, that are positive, that are productive, but that are welcoming and belonging to everyone, regardless of orientation, race, gender, creed, class, and the list goes on. Tell me a little bit more about actualizing belonging because I think I understand what that means, but I don't want to assume it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you an example. The only reason why me and you can speak right now over um, the internet is because 70% of the world's cobalt comes from the Congo where children are mining and the batteries in my laptop, my MacBook, and I'm not sure what computer you're using, um, have have this essential mineral. This essential mineral is inside our laptops, our phones, electric cards. Um, the Berlin Conference was a conference that happened a very long time ago. A lot of people aren't familiar with this conference, but the Berlin Conference basically carved up Africa like a piece of chocolate cake. And flash forward from that meeting to the Bretton Woods Conference. The Bretton Woods Conference was a conference that tied all monetary policy on the planet to the dollar um, and, and ushered in fiat currency, money not backed by gold. And then flash forward last year to COP26. And when you look at that picture of all the, of all the leaders, there's very few women. So there's a lack of gender harmonics and a lack of gender equity. The reason why I bring up those three meetings, the Berlin Conference, Bretton Woods and COP26, these were meetings that impacted literally all 7 billion plus people on the planet. And these were um, meetings that were conducted by stratified incestuous groups of individuals from primarily one race and one gender. 
And that's very troublesome because we see the outcomes of, of groupthink. We see the outcomes when you don't have diversity of thought, diversity of lived experience, diversity of gender, the list goes on. So creating spaces of belonging to me is our spaces, communities, where when you design them, they're co-created and they're co-created with the ambition that no one can be left out. And, and that's one of the great challenges that we have in ecosystems and sectors. How do we remove barriers, whether it be systemic? How do we identify conscious and unconscious bias? How do we mitigate and circumvent groupthink? Um, and, and how do we create these diverse spaces? Because we know no matter what consulting firm it is on the planet or a large hedge fund like BlackRock, McKinsey, PwC, Deloitte, KPMG, diverse teams always beat um, teams that lack diversity. Right. And there's reports on this from, from firms across the world. So, so in terms of your question, I believe that I don't have the answer. I don't have the panacea. I don't think any of us does individually, but collectively we do. And this is something that we always should be striving for. How can allies, people who may not personally uh, you know, identify with the mission, but share the uh, commitment to a better, more inclusive world, how can allies help the work of SETSI and similar work across the country? I believe that allyship is no longer enough just based off the level of disparity, um, especially economically. Um, I believe we need abolitionists. So like, let's say we go, we flash back 200 years, the codes de noir, like slavery existed in Canada, just like it existed in the United States. There was a time that it would be illegal for me to read and write or be as articulate um, as my mother tells me I am. During that time, there were abolitionists, there were Quakers, there, there were the white folks um, by multiple denominations and genders, um, and that's literally risked their lives to bring folks across the border. Um, whether it be, and then there's narratives and stories about this. Those were abolitionists. Then there were allies. Those allies maybe provided resources um, for transportation. I'll chip in on the gas, or I'll, I'll, I'll help with the, um, in, in this way, because I have a family. And, I, and there was reasons why they were allies. You can stay then, in my basement, but only till Tuesday, right? There, there you go, exactly, allies. Then there were adjacent allies. Those folks are like, you know what? What's happening to these folks is bad. I'll pray for them on Sunday. Um, and, then, and then there's everyone else. So there's adjacent allies, the allies, the abolitionists. I believe that we need folks that are like literally willing to, to put their jobs on the line, puts opportunities on the line, puts um, their careers on the line for equity, knowing that by doing that, it's like if you look at some of the, the last the last few years of the um, poet laureates and the Nobel Prize, these are journalists, these are folks that put their lives, careers, reputation on the line for what is right. And we need more of that. We need people to stand up for what is right, regardless of the circumstance um, or the situation. And not everyone is going to be able to be that level of abolitionist, but, but recognizing the roles, because there are multiple roles. Like I said before, you can, not everyone can be an abolitionist because they may have a family, other obligations, children, but then you're an ally and, 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 and you'd be the best ally you can be. Um, if you're an adjacent ally, maybe tra transforming or moving up the continuum to an actual 
ally um, makes sense. But there's a lot of iterations to how folks can support. And remember, everyone has privilege. I have great privilege. I'm an African-Canadian man um, who uh, was raised in Canada, um, a, a pretty safe country um, to a certain degree, depending on where you live. All my, my, my feature, my, my body works. I'm abled. I have no physical disabilities um, or, or, or challenges. So, so, so I have great privilege. So everyone unpacking their own personal privilege and leveraging their privilege to support folks that may not have the same level of opportunity provision, I think is really important in, this, in these times. So, right. so let's assume there uh, that our audience consists of a lot of, of entrepreneurs across Canada, business owners, and startup entrepreneurs. They control some resources. Um, what? How? How might they act in an abolitionist fashion? Um, definitely, we need abolitionist fashion. You need bold budgets and dynamic leadership. There's there's folks that. Are entre- there are entrepreneurs that control a remarkable amount of capital in Canada that are doing remarkable things. If you Google my colleague, Tim Caldwell, Tim Caldwell runs Shandos. Shandos is one of the, I believe, the largest B Corp in the entire world, based in Canada. They did $950 million last year. $250 million of that was social procurements. If you lean in on Tim's model and the model of channels and the opportunities that they're providing, not just to their employees, but to marginalize underserved communities, it's remarkable. So once again, um, in terms of what entrepreneurs can do, I believe entrepreneurs that are winning and are successful and that have large operating budgets can find ways and means to partner with diverse suppliers, diverse businesses. I believe that um, you can find ways and means to leverage your capital um, to provide opportunities to individuals on the margins, the periphery of the economy. I believe that um, entrepreneurs can find ways and means to create greater frameworks of inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, not just in their hiring, but in their governance models. Uh, And and the the list goes on and on and on. Um, There are so many ways, but but I believe bold budgets and dynamic leadership, because there's a lot of talk, a lot of statements, but but at, at the end of the day, um, it, it comes down to how are we going to move this thing up the field? And a lot of times resources plays a major role. Um, in an opinion piece that you wrote last year, Victor, you urged the government to deliver on its commitments to social finance and social innovation. And I'm wondering if you can tell me what we mean by those two terms and what you think the power of the government is in these areas. Yeah, absolutely. So the power with the government um, is really straightforward. Um, our government has recognized that social finance is a contemporary tool that can create um, greater equity um, and, and, and ensure that folks on, on the margins have meaningful access to opportunity provision. Um, the framework that's been built out is a framework that is going to deploy capital to a wholesaler and the wholesaler will deploy capital to intermediaries and those intermediaries will deploy resources to social purpose organizations um, and and basically create a two to one ratio. So for every dollar the Canadian government invests in a social finance model, it should create $2. And this model also was developed to attract private capital. Because at the end of the day, when you look at hedge funds, when you look at private equity, and when you look at venture capital, a lot more can be done for society. So this is our government's, once again, 
um, be a bold leadership and a bold budget and saying um, we have skin in the game and we're inviting the pri private markets to, to join us hand in hand in finding ways and means to deploy capital so that we can scale innovation in the country. In terms of social innovation, social innovation is a very ambiguous and vague term because there's so many interpretations of it. Um, so for instance, some folks may say Canada lacks innovation. I disagree. I think Canada is one of the most innovative countries in the world. But they'll say Canada lacks innovation because if you look at the TSX, um, a lot of Canadian companies that are the leaders on the TSX have been around for 100 years. But if you look at say, the NASDAQ or in the US, a lot of the leaders, these are nascent companies that, like, that have been around for 15 years. I believe Canada has great innovation. I believe that our innovation will scale exponentially when we find greater ways to create more inclusion, diversity, equity, and access at all tables and all levels of government and in, in, in all sectors and, on, and in all ecosystems. Right. Based on your experiences in, in so many different arenas and, and for so long in this area, I'm wondering if there's, a, you know, a particular moment or project that you are most proud of, one that you think led to some real impact or change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, the work that my brothers and I facilitated in Toronto around uh, the Baba's Co-op is a, a informal, we never incorporated the entity, but it was a cooperative of fathers. So um, in multiple African languages, the word Baba, B-A-B-A -A means father. And literally it was a program and a model around husbandry and fatherhood. Because to be a Baba, you have to be a husband and a father. Um, and, and in black uh, in the black community, there has been a lot of um, myth busting needed around fatherhood and husbandry. Sometimes um, there's a belief that I'm a great father, but I'm not in a relationship with the mother of my children. And there's nothing wrong with that. I cast no dispersion. But we really focus our efforts on building the capacity of our brothers around husbandry and fatherhood. And I believe that that work, um, to me, um, was the most impactful because one, it helped me up level my ability to be a better husband and father within my own household. And it also built a brotherhood and a bond where myself and many of my peers were able to lean on each other for, um, for exponential understanding, um, empathy, compassion, and love and solidarity. Um, and to this day, we still, you know, have um, have, have meetings quarterly. Um, uh, lots of us are all over the place, but it was a pretty large group. We never incorporated the cooperative, but it was a remarkable co-op. And that was um, some of my favorite work in Toronto, um, the Baba's Co-op. Victor, this is such an important story because the family is so important as a social unit and as, an, as a basic economic unit. So can you tell me some of the outcomes from the Baba project in terms of you know, repaired relationships or families? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the Baba's Cooperative, which was once again, an informal um, network of um, husbands and fathers that came together, family reunification was one of the, the major, I believe, wins that happened multiple times. Conflict mediation and conflict transformation within relationships and connecting our children together consistently, um, whether it be um, for models around educational attainment or just for adventures. And I, and I think that that really um, was inspired primarily um, by my 
big bro, my brother, Brandon Hay, the founder of the Black Daddies Club, which still exists. So the Black Daddies Club is a little bit the opposite of Baba's Co-op. It's a formal nonprofit organization that's existed for about, um, I think, over a decade, maybe two decades in Toronto, that's been doing some remarkable work. And we were inspired by that work and came together. So there are a lot of wins. Um, but my personal win was just the fact that we were able to come together as brothers and build a bond around something as simple, but as pervasive as an, as important as husbandry and fatherhood. And the fact that we still connect to this day. Fantastic story. We've been talking with Victor Beausoleil, the, the, the co-founder and executive, executive director of SETSI and a profoundly significant social entrepreneur in Toronto and Canada. Victor, you mentioned you, you've had 14 books that are already out there now, not, not counting the one you're still writing. Is there one book that you'd recommend that somebody pick up if they wanted to learn a little bit more about you and your work? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I wrote a book um, called Southern Hospitality, um, Attrition in Toronto South Detention Center. And it was based off of um, a lot of things that were happening in Toronto South Detention Center that disproportionately impacted Black men. Um, so definitely that would be a, a book I'd recommend um, for any of the listeners out there. And where could they find that book? I believe they can find it at Baba Bosley. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. I haven't um, promoted my books in a very long time. So oh, come me... on. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. BabaBosley.com. Yeah. B-A-B-A Bosley.com. Thank you. But yeah, it's been a very long time since I promoted any of my books. <laughs> so thank you for that. I appreciate it, Rick. No, I, I, I want to get to know you. My, that, that question was, was, <laughs> was for me. <laughs> Victor, do you have any final thoughts or pieces of advice specifically for those in you know, underrepresented communities looking to get involved with community building or social innovation programs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of times... Um, there's a there's a, a a saying that hurt people hurt people, and I believe that the healers, the people that go out to do community development work and community organizing, have a lot of um, healing they have to do themselves. So my, my advice would be um, before you begin your journey um, around entrepreneurship or especially around community organizing or community development work, um, work on knowledge of self and healing some of the parts of your character, the parts of your, your, your personal traumas that are so important to heal before you start your work. And once you're in the work, um, remain focused on who you're there to serve. Um, that's always my, my, my question to myself or my team, like, who are we serving? Who are we serving? Who, like, because it's through service um, that, we, that, we, that we reap the, the, the greatest rewards in life. Um, and it's through loving others that's we, we really exponentially scale our purpose and our passion. So, so those are um, the words that I would share um, at the end of the session. And just gratitude, great, infinite gratitude um, to your team at Startup Canada. And thank you, Rick, for this moment in time that we shared together. Thank you, Victor. It's, it's, it's inspiring. Uh, thank you for the work you've been doing. Uh, thanks for spending so much time with us and telling that story. And uh, I, I, I hope a lot of us go out there and buy the book and open our eyes a little bit more and all work towards this much more just and inclusive society that we'd all like to see. Indeed, Ashley. Warm regards. Thanks so much. We'll talk again. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles, and it's made possible by the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. 
Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence. <laughs>